Hello and welcome to Bible Marathon. We're all about learning how to read the Bible, about spiritual gifts and giving proper defense and explanation for what we believe as Christians. The goal is to progress with joy in the faith and without further ado, let's get into the word. All right, dear Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we just lift up your name, Father, and we say thank you. Thank you for times and opportunities where we can gather together as the body of Christ in fellowship, in communion, in unity as one body to go through your word, to go through the scriptures and to gain understanding and practical applications for living a true fruitful Christian life. Lord, we thank you that this is the month of discernment. Um, how your spirit leads us, how your spirit guides your children and your church, both through internal and external struggles. We pray that um, as I go through the word and I share with everybody, help me to speak your truth. Help me to speak the Holy Spirit's truth. Help me to speak the knowledge and understanding of your spirit, because your spirit is a spirit of truth, knowledge, and understanding. Father, I pray for our BMG family. I pray for this platform. May we continue to touch the lives of everyone that are listening and even those that will listen on the recording in the days to come. May they be blessed. May their hearts be tuned to understanding you better, to knowing how can God lead me? How does God even speak to me? I pray that all those questions and confusions will be cleared up in the mighty name of Jesus. And I pray that we will gain new understanding and gain new ground in our faith work. And we will be all the more stronger for it spiritually and emotionally. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. amen all right so yeah amen so um as victoria mentioned today's topic is on divine leading and i should also mention we're in the month of discernment and this is a very very practical topic so you're probably going to hear me give a lot of examples a lot of like you know stories as i'm going through each point on what divine leading is so um before i really go into my notes I actually want to tell a story, and this is a true life story that happened to me. So some of you may know, some of you may not know. I think I mentioned it on this platform like maybe two or three times. Um, I did my undergraduate here in the US, but obviously born in Nigeria, raised in Nigeria, I did secondary school in Nigeria. So um, when I was, I think I was 15, I want to say I was like 14, 15, so I was like maybe SS1, SS2, for those of you that school did secondary school in Nigeria you know what I'm talking about so when I was like 15 years old my mind was already actually thinking of like you know what am I going to go for university am I going to go abroad am I going to stay in Nigeria to be honest I was never really going to stay in Nigeria that, that was even an option for me but you know I was like it just came across my head I was like anything can happen so I remember talking to one of the counselors in my school I went to a boarding school by the way you know and she actually went to university in America in the US and she kind of laid the groundwork well more so she kind of planted the seed for me in my heart that I think I actually want to go to school in the US. Now be very honest my parents were not having my parents wanted me to go to England because all my siblings went to the UK so that like <laughs> you cannot be different though you're going to follow your siblings to England I was like no I'm not going to England but um yeah I would say from when I was 15 my heart was set on going to school in the U.S. And there was one school in particular that stood out. There were two, but there was one that kept cropping up over and over again over the preceding years. 
um, now it's Penn State, Pennsylvania State University. I actually remember still in boarding school, I had one of the brochures, or I think we call it prospectus for either one. I had one of those pamphlets of Penn State, and you know, on the pamphlet, you see the school, you see the picture of the school, you see the campus and everything. And I kid you not, I was just, I was just looking at the pamphlet, I was like, I can actually see myself going to this school. And I would literally envision, now, I'm, this, this is a key thing. I didn't say I had a vision, but I could envision myself in those pictures of the school with me actually going there. I just, I could just see it. I could just envision it. So it was very weird, but you know how you just, do you, do you know how you just envision yourself in certain places in the future? Maybe you see a picture of a place you want to go and you just, you can just picture yourself in that image there at some point in the future. That's literally what I was doing with Penn State. So, but you know, um, a year or two went by, I didn't think anything of it. Then if that wasn't enough, I now had a dream. This was like a year and a half afterwards. I had a dream, I was in a car. I was in the car with a family. Um, they were from, there was, it was a Caucasian family from England, they were British. I was in a car, everywhere was dark, but we we're just on a road and the car was just going on the road. And you couldn't see the end of the road, but the road was just long, it was just going, we we're just driving us in the back seats. They had their kids and the mother and father were in the front seats. So we were talking and we we're talking in this dream I was having. And then it just got to a point, the, the father and the husband, he said this was like, you know, if uh, you could go to the UK and you could do well, you could prosper anywhere God places you. This, this is what he was saying to me in the dream. But then he said, you're better off going to the US. You are destined to go to the US. And then that, the dream just ended and I just woke up. <laughs> it's one, it was it's one of the weirdest dreams I ever had because it was kind of clear, but at the same time I had so many questions. But you know, I I just prayed about it as you know, as, as you should normally do when you have a dream like that. I prayed about it. I put it up to God, you know, and just I didn't really think anything of it. So, but then you know, as time goes on, I graduated from secondary school. Um, I still I still had this dream of going to the US. So. I did do my SATs a year after I finished from secondary school. My parents were still trying to make me go to the UK, but I was like, nah, 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 I'm not going to do that. I want to go to the US. So I took my SATs. Um, that's the exam you take if you want to go to college in the US. Got my scores. I applied to Penn State, the same Penn State that I mentioned earlier. And then lo and behold, I got accepted. This was 2014. So, and 2014 was when I came to the US. So I've been in the US ever since then. Started at Penn State. Then the same picture, if you remember, I mentioned the pamphlet, the same picture of the campus where I envisioned myself being in the school. I think it was my third or second year. I think it was my third year. I was actually standing in the same field where that had the picture of that part of the campus. And I was just like, it just seemed that, you know what, what I envisioned has actually come to pass. Like God has brought to pass what I envisioned. So just to recap why I'm mentioning this, there's two aspects to this. There was a part where I envisioned myself in the possible future at that campus. And then there was the dream. And obviously I can tell you looking back that it was God communicating to me in those two ways through me envisioning myself and then through the dream. And those two ways that um, I saw myself at the school or me going to university in the US, it pretty much sums up what I'm going to be talking about in today's teaching. So again, 
For those of you that are just joining us, today's teaching is called Divine Leading and the theme of the month of the sermons. So um, starting off, I want to go through a scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 to 16. Um, I don't know if Victoria is going to pull it up. If not, I can pull it up um, by myself and read it out loud. So Victoria, are you going to pull it up or you just want me to read it? I'll push it up. I'm coming. Okay. If you can, just let me like, can pull it up. I think I've been here already. All right. So yeah. First Timothy 15, 16. So this is Paul writing this to Timothy. One of his letters to Timothy he wrote more than one. This is a faithful saying and worthy of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Sorry, that in me, first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering or patience in some translations as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So like I said, this is Apostle Paul writing this. And just for a bit of context, in the verses prior, Paul had talked about how despite his past, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ had chosen him to be an apostle to many, especially to Gentiles, you know, to be that messenger of Christ's gospel to, you know, to the people outside of Israel. So you can see in verse 15, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So Paul is saying that out of all the sinners that Christ died for, I'm probably the worst of the worst. But he, in his patience, still saw it fit to choose me as his apostle. You know, so Paul, Paul knew that he was chosen despite his past to preach the gospel of Christ like the world's. And of course, if you're familiar with Paul's conversion, if you go to the book of Acts, it was what we would call a very supernatural or a very dramatic conversion experience. You know, I can briefly recap it. Paul at this point was the biggest persecutor of Christians. He was writing to Damascus to go and persecute Christians again. But then the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him, you know, in the vision. And that's how you know, he became a Christian. So if, if you read the account, go back to Acts, go and read the story. It's very dramatic, very, very, uh, very supernatural, very dramatic experience. And, you know, today in the church, we tend to attribute God communicating with us, not all the time, but a, a lot of people tend to envision that God's communication to his people must always be in a dramatic sense. We must have to be this special event like, oh, you know, I saw angels descending and but like, God has told you to do this. We, we, we always see that it has to be some kind of extra, extra thing, but that's not always the case. You know, in Paul's case, it was. And sometimes that happens because maybe um, God wants to get a specific point across to somebody who may have, you know, maybe the person is stubborn. It really depends on lots of things. But what I'm saying is that it's not always the case that it will be a dramatic thing. You know, if, as a matter of fact, the number one way that God speaks to us and he communicates to us or he leads his children is through his word, which is the scriptures, you know, and it's okay. You may be like, okay, fair. How, how can you prove that it's not always a dramatic experience that God will lead us? I can prove it to you. Um, first Kings 19, 19 verse 11 to 15. First Kings chapter 19, verse 11 to 15. And this is actually um, the story of Elijah in the old Testament. Of course, Elijah is, probably the most important prophet in the entire Old Testament. All right, thank you. So first King 19, 15. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. 
And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice, a still small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it, heard the voice that oh, wasn't done with verse 13 yet. Could you, could you go back? Thank you. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly, again, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenants, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. In last verse, verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, so you can see now that voice was actually God talking to him. The Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. So this is very, very important. You can see a lot is happening in this scripture. Um, there was a rush of wind. There was an earthquake. There was a fire. It's, it's like the whole, is. I mean, to have wind and earthquake and then fire just come out of nowhere, you just be like, what's going on? Is that like, is the, is the coming to an end? And I, I can't imagine if there was a strong wind here and then there was an earthquake here where I am and then there's fire, it would just be like, like what's going on? So a lot of dramatic things are happening, but see how um, the author of this book is very intentional. He's saying that the Lord was not in any of those things. He wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. It was a still small voice. It was a gentle voice that called out to Elijah. And then Elijah is kind of, I feel like Elijah was going through depression. It's just like, Lord, who is me? They've all turned against you. They're all committing idolatry. I'm the only one that hasn't committed idolatry. And then for context um, sake, later in the scripture, God assures him that, no, you're not the only one. I've preserved 7,000 Israelites who are just like you. They're still committed to me. So you're not the only one. So God basically gives him peace and reassurance that he's not alone. But you can see how everything develops and then God just speaks to him in a small voice. Let me just say that up to today, I mean, this happened thousands of years ago in that scripture, but let me tell you that up to today, you are still more likely to hear God speaking to you in that gentle voice than in a dramatic vision or in some kind of dream or something. Again, those things do happen, but the voice of the Holy Spirit, and of course the Holy Spirit is God, the voice of God, that inner voice inside you is the one you really need to pay attention to if you're trying to answer like, you know, how does God lead me or how does he direct me? You know, and there are quite a few um, reasons why God's divine leading and direction should not be limited to just these spectacular occurrences and events, especially when it comes to visions because you hear a lot of, times people having visions within the church that you know i saw god told me this or i saw this vision of this so there are about three reasons why you shouldn't just limit it in fact why you probably shouldn't be dependent on spectacular visions or events like as the main way that god speaks to you so there's one reason number one visions are not infallible in other words visions can be they can be wrong sometimes so let me give you a practical example a lot of the religions in the world today, even some, you could even argue some denominations within the Christian faith, but a lot of false religions today, 
Do you know that they started by false visions or by people having quote-unquote visions, either of an angel or of God? Who can give me one example of such a religion? A very common one. I can Islam. actually think of two. Islam. Thank you. Who was that? Goodness. Goodness. Thank you. Yeah, Islam is one. Islam was one. There's another one I'm thinking of, which is actually, well, oh, it, we've covered this one on BMG before. Sorry, who was that? Mormonism. Mormonism, yes, thank you. That was the second one. So Islam and Mormonism actually trace their origins to like divine encounters or visions. Um, with Islam, actually, I think both of them were based on divine visions from angels in a sense. Because with Islam, you know, the Prophet Muhammad, he claimed to have had a vision of an angel, you know, telling him um, or giving him like, you know, new revelation of scriptures, because you know. Most, I think Muslims believe that the, the, the current scriptures of the Bible have been corrupted in a sense. So Muhammad was praying and then he said an angel came and gave him a new kind of revelation, which of course now led to the birth of Islam. Then with Mormonism, um, someone should correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was Joseph Smith. I think that was his name, who was the founder of the Mormon church. He also claims to have had a vision of an angel who also gave him a new divine revelation saying that, oh, the current Bible was corrupt. Okay, this is Joseph Smith. So, so again, you can see why visions can be very, if, if, you, if you don't cross-check them against the word of God, visions can be very dangerous because this is how a lot of false religions have started. So, and Islam and Mormonism are not the only ones, but there are just a few examples of why you can't always trust your visions. If you have a vision, you have to test it against the word of God. You have to test it against the scriptures. The scripture should always be, what's that word? Is it our, is it our verification system? Or I, some, that, that word I'm thinking of, do you guys get what I'm saying? We should always verify our visions and our divine encounters with the word of God because the word of God is truth. Your experiences cannot always be what leads you to make decisions in life, if that makes sense. So that's one. So that's one. Visions are not infallible. Um, you know, another key thing. So still on this one about visions not being infallible. Another key, key thing to highlight: no matter what the vision, no matter the nature of the vision that you have, you know, if you feel like it's God speaking to you, if we go by the consistency of God's nature and character throughout the Bible. The vision you have or the message you feel like God is giving you it should never inspire fear or hopelessness in you, right? In fact, if, it, if, if you have a vision of something or someone or yourself and it creates this sense of fear and hopelessness, there's a good chance that that's not God speaking to you. So and let me give you an example. Um, I heard a story once of somebody who, had, who said that he had a vision for a friend of his that you know, God was sending that friend a warning through him that he needs to stop one particular habit. I, I can't remember the detail of it, but I went to go and tell this friend that, you know, God gave me this word for you that you need to, that it's a one you need to stop this, otherwise it's going to lead to this. And then if that wasn't bad enough, the friend now told him that, by the way, there's nothing you can do about it. It's already done. It's going to happen. Even if you pray, there's nothing you can do about it. And, in, and the friend said that immediately, he knew that that was a red flag because there is never has there been a time that God has given a warning to anyone. You can even see this throughout the Old Testament. Whenever God has given warnings to those who oppose him, he always gives them a chance to repent. And we all agree on that. God always gives a chance to repent. 
So if you ever hear of someone giving you a vision or a message of, of any kind, and then the person answers that God has already said it's done, there's not there's no there's nothing you can do, no repentance or pleading you can do that will change his mind, then please uh, that's probably that's probably not from God. That's probably not from God. So and there are many examples of this, you know. I think of um on word dinner this Friday, we covered the story of Jonah when God gave Jonah um to give the Ninevites a warning. God still gave the Ninevites chances to repent, and they did repent eventually. You know, you think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham was pleading with God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God was actually giving opportunities for the people in Sodom and Gomorrah to repent. Unfortunately, they didn't. And then the last example I can think of is Noah when he was building the ark. Noah was building the ark and still telling people, repent, the flood is coming, save yourselves, don't continue in your rebellious ways. So anytime God has given warnings of destruction to someone or a group of people, he always gives a chance to repent. If someone says that God has given you no chance to repent, that's not God. It's not consistent so that you can be sure that that's not from God. So visions are not infallible. That's one. The second one, they can be fabricated by people. <laughs> this one, I've heard all kinds of stories, but um, I'll share an example, a common example that I think we've talked about on this platform before. So we've all heard testimonies of people saying that, you know, God showed me heaven, God showed me hell. I died and went to hell. The amount of, the amount of YouTube videos I've seen alone in the past year, people saying that, ah, God showed me heaven. I saw this person in hell. It's, it's so tiring. It's so tiring. I remember in secondary school, I used to be so afraid watching those kind of YouTube videos. Just like, why am I watching this? It's giving me anxiety. Um, but I'm thinking of one case where there was a boy, you know, he claimed that he died and that he went to heaven and then he saw angels and this. And, and I mean, it was all over, it, it, it was all over the news, you know, and people, I think they wrote a book about it. I'm not even, I think so. I think they wrote a book about this particular encounter. You know, and then there was one part of the story where a lot of people are like, this is suspect. So there was one part where the boy was in heaven and he saw angels and he was asking the angels to sing to him. And then it was not like the angels were singing, we will, we will rock you. <laughs> of all the songs, that, that was the one song that they sang to him. I know it's ridiculous. And I mean, a lot of people are all like, okay, that's a red flag because... Out of all these songs, that's the one that angels in heaven, angels are singing songs of praise and worship to God. They will now choose to sing that song because you ask them to. So, But for many years, people still believe this boy's account. Only for a few years later, the boy now turned around and said, that actually, I fabricated it. It, was, it wasn't true. So after they've sold books on this story and made millions and millions of dollars, the boy now turned around. And I think the boy said that his parents kind of persuaded him to lie and just fabricate the whole thing. So. Yeah, it, it's it's really sad, but again, that's an example of how people can just fabricate stories that may be that may look true, you know, but it's actually not a true account. So that's very important. So again, visions can be fabricated, so you have to be very careful. Then the devil can mimic them. The devil can actually mimic visions, um, you know. But then there's one key thing with this third point. Because the devil can mimic visions, there's one thing the devil cannot. Um, recreates and that's the internal witness of the holy spirit within you the devil cannot in um the devil cannot mimic the internal witness of god speaking within you that's through the holy spirit 
Maybe at best, the devil can entice your flesh to add an alternate voice to what the Holy Spirit is telling you, but he cannot mimic it. He can't repeat it, if that makes sense. So I hope you guys are with me so far. I know I've been saying a lot. Um, I still have a bit of things to go, but I wanted to emphasize on that. So to recap, three reasons why you should never allow God's divine leading your life to simply be limited to just like all these grand visions. Number one, visions are not infallible. They can be fabricated by people. People can lie. They can make things up. And then the devil can mimic them. So, yeah, those are the three points on when it comes to visions in particular. And again, I just want to emphasize that God's primary method of leading his, his church, his, his, his primary method of leading each and every one of us is always by his word, is always by the scriptures. Um, a common scripture that we all know very well is Psalm 119, verse 105, where it says, your word is a light to my is a light to my feet and a lamp to my pathway. God's word is light that guides us. The word of God should be the number one stopgap when it comes to giving us direction on a lot of things in life. When it comes to specific instructions, it may not necessarily come from the scriptures. That's when the Holy Spirit can give you direct instruction, maybe through prayer, even through quiet time. But the word of God should always be the number one way, you know, that God directs us and he guides us. Um, looking for the next thing on my notes. Um, so, yeah, I want to go through a few more scriptures, actually. Um, Romans 8, verse 13 to 14. And this is actually a very important point. Romans 8, verse 13 to 14. So I can pull that up, actually. Okay, yeah, I have it. Romans 8, 20, 14. For if you are, if you, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. So this is very, very key. I see a question in the chat. Um, replica, what's the difference between vision, word of knowledge, and prophecy? That's a very good question. So replica, I'll come back to that question when I'm done. So just, just remind me again. Um, I don't want to address it now because I still have a few more notes to go through, but I'll, I'll come back to that question at the end of when I'm done with my um, teaching. So Romans 8, 13, 14, let me just read it again. For you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. Now, this is actually a very common passage, but this is very, very important. And there's a reason why I brought up this passage. I want to highlight something that is very, very key. Um, I actually didn't know this till recently as I was studying this passage. And this is only available to believers. So there is a specific leading there's a specific leading that only believers possess. We've kind of touched on it already. But that passage tells us, again, what the specific leading is. It's the leading of the Holy Spirit that makes the deeds and desires of the flesh no longer irresistible. So what do I mean by this? So just think of how, just think of how you were as a person before you were saved. Just imagine what your desires were before you were saved, how you functioned, how you um, how your worldview was, even how you saw life, it's, it was very different to how you were before you were saved to now that you're saved. 
And the major reason is because now you have the Holy Spirit that is letting you know that these desires of the flesh, you know your flesh is one of the biggest things that you fight in your Christian world. The major difference that we as Christians have is that the Holy Spirit is now letting you know that this is your flesh that was once, it almost felt like it was impossible to resist what your flesh was craving. The Holy Spirit is now telling you that you can easily resist because he is there. It is a spirit that empowers us to live above the flesh, if that makes sense. Your flesh is no longer irresistible. That's why I had it there. It's no longer irresistible. The desires of the flesh are no longer irresistible. The spirit has now, this, the law of the spirit is greater than the law of the flesh. I think there's another passage that actually talks about that, you know. And this is why one of the fruits of the spirit is self-control, you know. That's in Galatians 5, um, 16 to 22, where it talks about, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, self-control, patience, faithfulness, goodness, all those things. So self-control, the spirit gives you self-control to live above the desires and deeds of the flesh. That's a specific type of divine leading that only Christians have. Someone who is saved does not have that kind of divine leading because they don't possess the Holy Spirit, if that makes sense. So um, moving on. So if someone asks like, okay, is there a way we can summarize the different ways that God gives us divine leading or he gives us direction in our lives? And there actually is, there's an acronym that you can use, you know, you can even use this when you're facing temptation. It's a very useful tool. There's an acronym and that acronym is called PRICE, P-R-I-C-E, PRICE. You know, when you think of like the cost or value of something, you can just think of PRICE. So PRICE stands for five points, five um, five um, points that you can use to remember when it comes to divine leaning. So the first one is P, persuasions. Persuasions is the first one. The second one is restrictions, R. Third one is I, ideas and passions. We've kind of touched on that, but I'm going to go into more detail now. The fourth one is C, confirmations. And then the fifth one is E. So P-R-I-C-E, price, persuasions, restrictions, I, um, persuasion, restrictions, ideas and passions, confirmations and ease. So starting with the first one, persuasions. This is actually a very, I feel like this is one of those ones that we actually see a lot in our Christian work, but sometimes we may not recognize it. So what do we mean by persuasions? When, I, when we say persuasions, we're simply referring to perceiving and sensing spiritual environments through the Holy Spirit within us. So, and there's a passage that will help explain this. Acts chapter 14, verse 8 to 9. Acts chapter 14, verse 8 to 9. So I know Victor will try and help us bring that up, but just in case we pull it up. Acts chapter 14, verse 8 to 9. Okay, thank you, Victor. So this is um actually Paul in Lystra. So, and in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, Paul observing him intently and seeing. So in this word seeing, you could also use the word perceiving, perceiving that he had faith to be healed. So what's happening here? So Paul was teaching and then a man who was crippled, he had never walked in his life, you know, was listening to him. And then Paul saw him, Paul caught a glance around and he was like, the Holy Spirit was telling Paul that this man has faith to be healed. 
So this is basically what we mean by persuasion. It's when you're able to discern, you know, since the theme of the month is discernment, the spirit gives you this ability to discern certain things about someone, whether it comes to faith or maybe if they're going through something or maybe if they're troubled within themselves emotionally, you know, and this is why the Holy Spirit is very, very important for the person who is saved, person who is, you know, a believer in Christ. Before you're saved, it may be hard to be able to discern things like this. You may be able to tell maybe through certain body language and other things, but it's only through the Holy Spirit that you can discern certain key spiritual things like, you know, faith, for example, to be healed. So that's what persuasion is. Then the next one is restrictions. And this one, I feel like restrictions is the one I've seen the most in my life. Well, one of the two, I, I think restrictions and passions. But restrictions is very, very key. So what do we mean by restrictions? We're also referring to restraints, spiritual restraints. So for restrictions, how we can define it, when you get a restraint regarding something or someone, you know, or when you get restraining notions that you should not travel to a specific place. So have you ever had that voice? Maybe the Holy Spirit just telling you that you shouldn't go to this place because you're either you're supposed to be doing something else or something bad is about to happen. I mean, I'm sure you've heard a lot of testimonies and miracles of this happening. You know, praise is saying, yeah, we can. I can think of so many. There are so many wild stories I've heard of this one, restrictions. I remember one. Um, this one was this one really shook me. I remember one story of um, I think it was in Nigeria. Um, a couple was it a couple or two people they were supposed to get on a flight, right? And then they had bought their ticket and everything, you know. And then on their way to the airport, they were just a lot. A lot of weird things were just happening. They ran into so many delays. They ran into the traffic, and then one of one of the people in the group was like, "I feel like God is telling me we're not supposed to get on this flight." Like we're not supposed to get on this flight. You know, the other person was like, what do you mean? Like we're, we're already late, we're already late. But the person was like, no, like the reason we're not supposed to get on this flight. And it's not like the person even said like, oh, there's an accident that's going to happen. Or it, it was just that, just that restraint that was telling that not supposed to get on this flight. So anyway, a lot of things happened. They ended up missing that flight. Then I think by the time they got home, they actually heard that now the plane actually crashed, you know, and it was a tragic thing and people died. So that's that's just one example of how the spirit, God just restrains you from certain situations. And let me let me also add this. It is perfectly okay if you don't fully understand why you're getting that leading. The, the main thing is just to follow in obedience. It's perfectly okay if you don't understand why you're getting that leading. The key thing is just to be. I can think of another story where, and I think this was in the this one was in the US. A student at one of the schools, she was supposed to be in a particular building at one time, um, but then she just had this thing that those was telling her to go home instead, go home and study. I think she was going to um, that part of the campus to study, but those was telling her no, go and study at home. Don't go and. She was like, you know, she didn't understood why the Holy Spirit was leading her not to study in school, but she eventually obeyed and left. And then, you know, I think a few hours later, she got a um, notification from her school that there was a shooter on the campus in the same building where she was supposed to be at. So this is where restraint is key. The same building where she was initially going to go, the Holy Spirit persuaded her not to go, restricted her. She went to, ended, ended up studying at home. So 
that literally her following the obedience of the spirit, the spirit literally saved her life because God forbid, who knows what would have happened to her if she had been there. So, and I'm sure you guys could tell me so many, many um, stories of this. So restrictions is very, very important. I've had a lot of encounters with that through restriction. So that's the second one. The next one is ideas and passions. So let, let me confess something. This third one, ideas and passions, I feel like I'm li currently living through this one. And I'll explain why. What do we mean by ideas and passions? So when someone gives you advice, it's literally just that advice. But when God speaks to you and puts something inside, inside you that you just have this, how can I say it? It's like God puts this desire inside you that you don't sleep at night because of it. You're just, you care a lot about addressing this issue or concern or whatever it is that God has put inside you. I would say that there's a very good chance that that is a supernatural passion that God has given you. And it could be about anything. I will even see this example in scriptures. Goodness is saying this too. <laughs> so yeah, this is a very key one. Um, I mean, there's an example of this in the Bible with Moses, the story of Moses. So, you know, we all remember how God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And then God literally ordained that you're the one who is going to lead the Jewish people out of slavery in Egypt. But if you look at the story of Moses very carefully throughout Exodus, you actually notice that God had kind of given that passion and desire within Moses to kind of help the Israelites even before God called him. So what do I mean? Um, I can't remember the scripture, but do you remember the story how Moses, he already, even from his upbringing in Egypt, he had this hatred towards the way the Egyptians were enslaving the Jewish people. He just had this hatred for it. And then one day he saw a slave, a Jewish, a Jewish man who was being flogged by an Egyptian. And what happened? Moses got angry and he ended up killing the Egyptian. Right? Okay. Someone has, we just pulled the passage, Exodus 2. So he looked this way and that way. And when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian. You know, he looked this way. He killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So keep in mind, God had not called Moses by this point too. Moses was still living like an Egyptian because remember the story, um, one of Pharaoh's daughters raised Moses because she found him in, in the river. She raised Moses. She gave him the name Moses, actually. I remember that part of the story. So Moses was still living as an Egyptian, even though he knew he was a Jew. But this was before God called him. Moses already had that desire that this, this slavery of the, of, of the Israelite people is wrong. Like Moses already knew. He had that desire in him. And God used that eventually to make him the leader to liberate the, the, um, the Israelites from, from slavery in Egypt. So this is a very good example in the Bible of what it means when God gives you desire, ideas and passions, right? Paul, we were talking about Paul earlier. Paul is another famous example. So let me ask you guys this question. We've seen that even, we've seen that when Paul was persecuting the church, you could say that he had this zeal for God, right? So would you guys say that his passion was right? He had the right passion and the right zeal. What do you guys think? Hey, can I say something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Sir. Okay. So Paul actually did have the right passion. He, right? he, had, zeal. he had the right zeal, right? Well, because mm -hmm. of knowledge, like his knowledge was very limited. 
So yeah, the direction of that passion and that's it was wrong. And I think that's exactly yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you, Victor. You're absolutely correct. So Paul's desire and passion was actually a good thing. It was just the way he was channeling it, right? And this is how you know God is very intentional because you know we talked earlier about how Paul's conversion experience was a dramatic, you know, event or a spectacular supernatural event. But then remember when um, God spoke to Ananias, who would eventually, you know, baptize Paul. He told Ananias that I have made Paul to be my messenger to the Gentiles and that he's going to suffer greatly for my name. So, I mean, God, God doesn't do things by accident. God is very, very intentional. He does things with purpose. God already puts that passion that Paul had for God, for, you know, for his faith, for the things of God, that zeal that Paul had, God knew it was good. God was just like, God just knew that I just have to redirect it. Exactly. We can see it after he found the right knowledge. Thank you. Praise like that same zeal that Paul had before his conversion to Christianity, he still demonstrated it, but in a better way after his conversion to Christianity, because you can see Paul preached the gospel to the rest of the world. The 12 apostles really preached the gospel to the Jewish community, but you see that Paul preached it to the entire, to the entire Gentile world. So that zeal that Paul had, he still used it to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. He just had to be redirected and, you know, given the right knowledge and just rechannel it in the proper way. So his, his desire and his passion was good, even though he was doing evil things. He just had to be redirected and recorrected. So ideas and passions are very, 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 very important. I mean, I can tell you right now, guys, at this stage in my life, there are a lot of passions in my heart that I know through prayer and also through a lot of words of knowing that people have given me in my life. I have a lot of passions that I know are from God. I think the key thing now I'm just trying to determine is how am I going to, you know, make it come to pass or what stage should I be in, you know, in, in alliance with God that will make it come to pass. So, yeah, so ideas and passions are very, very, it's a very, very common way that God leads us as, as his children, as his sons and daughters. And I still want to talk about um, these ideas and passions. So a good question to ask would be, how can I differentiate or know which passions in me are of the flesh or are of my own passions and which ones are from God? So there are two ways you can know. Number one, if you have a passion that is from God or a desire that God has placed in you, your prayer life will increase. Your prayer regarding that thing will increase. It won't die down. It will only grow in intensity. Um, let me let me think of an example which we've actually discussed on this platform last year. So I don't know if you guys remember, was it September? Victoria will remind me when we did the theme of evangelism or influence, salt and light. Do you guys remember the salt and light theme that we did last year? Oh uh, yes, I remember. You remember, okay, Victoria remembers, if anybody else remembers. Um, so we, we talked about influence. I actually talked about influence evangelism, but we also did like integer evangelism, evangelism in the workplace. I'm actually, I'm actually, I can't believe I actually remember all these messages, but that was actually one of my favorite themes from last year on BMG. But okay, praise remember. So yeah, we talked about being salt and light. So I remember I, I actually covered the last Sunday in that month, which was influence evangelism and briefcase evangelism, which was workplace. I think they handled that one. But the one I talked about was influence evangelism. And I gave the case study of the Clapham sect. I don't know if you guys remember that one. So some of you might remember because my dad was actually present for that 
um, Sunday message. So if you guys remember that one, that's one I did. Yeah, Victoria remembers. So I talked about the Clapham sect and how those Christians, there were a group of Christians in the UK who used their political and social influence to end the slave trade in the British Empire. You know, there were believers who used all their influence, they used all their wealth. And you remember the, the leader of the group, William Wilberforce. I talked about all of them, but William Wilberforce was the main, he was the main figurehead. He was the leader of that group. So, and I'll tell you this, before he became a Christian, if you read about his life, he already had this disdain for slavery in general. This was before he even became saved. He already had this deep-rooted hatred for slavery. He, he wasn't a, an advocate for slavery at all. He had a disdain for it. This was before he got saved. But his, you notice that his desire to end slavery only increased after he got saved. William Wilberforce was an example. After he got saved, his passion to end the slave trade increased. You know, his, his time spent in prayer, asking God to, you know, lead him to the right people and make the right connections, especially within politics to end the slave trade, that increased as well. So that's a good example. Whatever passion that you have in your life, that you feel is from God, if it's from God, your prayer regarding that passion and desire is only going to increase. It's not going to reduce. So that's one. The second one, your desire and that passion will be motivated by love. And what do I mean by this? It will be born out of selflessness. It's not going to be a selfish desire. So me, I'm not going to lie to you guys. I have many passions and desires that are not from God. And having passions in general is not a bad thing. It's good. Like me, I actually want to... One of my dreams is to travel around the world. I actually want to travel around the world. I want to make a lot of money. I want to be rich. I'm not going to front for you guys. That's the truth. That's, that's actually how, that's something I've always wanted to do, right? But, and those desires and passions I have, they're not bad in and of themselves. But you already know that those are, those are me, those are passions more focused towards myself, gratifying myself. But other passions that I have, like, you know, educating one passion I have that is educating people about the gospel, teaching younger, especially younger men about the gospel. That is a passion that is a godly passion. And how can you tell? Because it's geared towards helping others. It's a, there's a selflessness behind that passion and desire. I hope I'm making sense. That passion that I have to educate young, younger men about, you know, their identity in God, you know, about how the gospel can change their life. That is a selfless passion. It's motivated by love. It's rooted in love. So that, that's, an, that's another way you can tell. So let me go over it again. If you ask yourself the question, how can I differentiate between my personal desires and then my godly desire, my godly passions? Number one, your prayer life regarding it will increase. It will reduce. You, your, your passion will show through in your prayer life regarding it. And number two, it will be motivated in selflessness. It will be motivated by love. So those, those are two ways you can differentiate between worldly passions and godly passions. Then moving on to the next one. So remember price, persuasions, restrictions. We've just covered ideas and passions. C, the next one is C, confirmations. Confirmations, this is another very common way. So if, God's, if God gives you an instruction regarding something or a course of action to take, and then maybe later down the line, it could be the same day, it could be days afterwards, you now, you now see that theme reoccur again or you get a reminder from an unexpected place you know something unexpected or a person unexpected there's a good chance that that's a confirmation and i mean 
There are many, many examples of this that I can give. I can give one example that happened to me just last year in December. Um, I, I had, God gave me a word of knowledge for somebody, you know, in my friendship group, someone who I'm very close to, we're in the same fellowship and everything. And this was very interesting because this confirmation was actually for me. But at the time, at the time God gave me the word, I thought it was for her. So I shared it with her and it was, you know how some words of knowledge are not very clear, but you're just like, if I share it with this person, they may probably understand, you know, they may probably understand what it means. So I shared it with her and she was, and I was, and I asked her like, does this make sense to you? Because I won't like to me, it was vague, but I felt like God wanted me to tell you about it. And she was like, yeah, it makes perfect sense. And she now said that God gave her the same words and that it was actually for myself. But she feels like God wanted me to take the first step. And then I was like, how is it for me? If God told me to, and she explained, and I, was, and I was just like, oh yeah, that makes sense. So, so that's an example of a confirmation. Um, God, God will give you an instruction. He may give you direction on something or someone. Maybe you then pray about it and then later down the line, through another source, another unexpected person, another source, God now reminds you about that same thing he told you about before. So, and it could be about anything, you know, I've had confirmations about maybe about specific jobs, job offers that I got, you know, God would tell me that you're going to work in this place during this time. And then I kind of forget about it, but then later down the line, someone tells me, I was like, he said, God told me that you're going to be, you know, this place, the same place. So, and obviously the person has no idea of what God told me prior, but the fact that they're getting the same, the same word from God is, is an example of a confirmation. So, and it can happen multiple times in a given period of time. There's no rule to it. So that's confirmation. Then the last one is ease. That's the letter E, ease and price. And when we say ease, we don't mean like, you know, God is going to give you something that's going to be very easy. That's not what it means. When we say ease, we're just simply referring to a sense of ease or a sense of peace regarding a certain decision or a certain choice. And I feel like a common example of this is when people pray regarding uh, maybe marriage, who they're supposed to marry or, you know, who they're supposed to date. I hear a lot of testimonies about this, you know, that when they prayed about somebody they were sitting, how they knew that that was the one God had destined for them is that, you know, they had a sense of peace about it. I don't know if you guys have heard that example, but I hear that a lot, especially when it comes to marriage, that God gave me a sense of peace regarding this person. That's how I knew that this is probably going to be the person I'm going to end up marrying. You know, and it's not it's it's not necessarily just marriage. It can be in ministry. It could be in anything. But when there's no when there's an absence of anxiety, I know the Holy Spirit is saying that there's no red flags, there's no warnings, there's no issues here. You can move forward with whatever decision. That's an example of ease. So just to recap, um, price. I'm just gonna this. I'm rounding up here just to recap. Price persuasions, restrictions ideas and passions, confirmations, and ease. So um, divine, divine leading is a very, very, it's a very practical topic. Um, we've seen that it can take on many forms, you know, but one thing we've seen consistently, consistently is that the Holy Spirit is the number one voice when it comes to divine leading, right? And then not only that, whatever, the Holy Spirit tells you, you always want to measure it against the word of God. The Bible should always be your number one 
fact checker, if you if you feel like God is leading you in a certain direction, you always want to make sure that it doesn't contradict his word. If it contradicts the Bible, then either it's not from God or you need to seriously still, you know, evaluate whatever leading or direction you're getting. So that was basically all my notes and all I have to share with you. Now, I know we have a couple of questions. Um, so I think Replica had a question. But before I go to Replica's question, does anybody have any other question about what we discussed today? Maybe any thoughts, anything? Um, you can use the raise and feature. Yeah, if you have a question, just go ahead and ask. Anybody have any questions? Um, so like where we're waiting, you can answer Replica's question that you asked. Yeah, I was, I was, I was trying to find it in the chat. Okay, I found it. So, and this is a very good question. What's the difference between vision, word of knowledge, and prophecy? That's a very good question. So, um, word of knowledge, because that's the one, so I'll say this, word of knowledge, because that's the one I tend to experience the most, I'll start with that one first. So, word of knowledge is basically, if God reveals, when the Holy Spirit reveals either a detail or a present situation regarding somebody that you, that you previously wouldn't have known, if that makes sense. Let me repeat that again. Word of knowledge is when the Holy Spirit reveals to you specific details about someone that you otherwise wouldn't have known under normal circumstances. So, for example, let's say God gives me a word of knowledge about Victoria, maybe regarding um, something about her job. Just, just a detail that, you know, I know Victoria hasn't told me this about herself. So there's no way I would have known by asking someone else. I just know because the Holy Spirit just revealed it to me. That's an example of a word of knowledge. So that's one example. Um, another example could be if, some, if God gives me a word of knowledge regarding maybe someone is struggling in school and then I now tell the person like, you know, are you, are you struggling with this in your school? And the person is like, you know, how did you know that? I was like, it's, it's the Holy Spirit. So that's an example of word of knowledge. So word of knowledge again, the Holy Spirit reveals you a specific detail about someone that you wouldn't have known otherwise. Now, a vision. A vision is more, I would say a vision is usually like an encounter. It's kind of like a supernatural encounter. You know, so when maybe if you have an encounter with an angel, for example, you, you see something that is supernatural. And... You know, when it when the vision happens, so it's it's hard to define it without giving an example. So I think an example I can give is like the transfiguration. Remember the transfiguration story where Jesus was, you know, was glowing um, on the mountain, then Moses and Elijah appeared to him. So, and then Peter, James, and John, they saw Moses and Elijah and Jesus was glowing. And then God said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And I think Jesus actually said that, don't tell anyone else about this vision that you saw. So it's like a supernatural encounter of something that could be an angel or God or anything. So that's a vision. And that's how it's different from a word of knowledge. Then prophecy. Prophecy is not too different from word of knowledge. There's one major difference between prophecy and word of knowledge. Prophecy is more so of a future event than a present situation, if that makes sense. So a prophecy is when God gives you detail about someone or something that's going to happen in the future or that is going to come to pass later in the future, right? If that makes sense. So word of knowledge is for a current or present situation 
Prophecy is when God gives you detail about something that's happening, maybe in the far or distant future. So I hope that makes sense. Replica, does that answer the question? Can I but, ask uh, something to what you said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure, Victoria. All right. So like what you said is actually very correct. I just want us to, I just want to bring to our notice that if we if we actually really notice in the Bible, I don't think like um strict definitions were given. So for example, I think um Paul was actually listening um right gives to he spoke about word of wisdom i think this say word of wisdom or word, word of knowledge right but he listed this mm -hmm. out and then some people have kind of um they made it like a strict rule like if you do this then word of wisdom is different from word of knowledge and i'm not saying that like they are like all the same but the focus what paul was doing there was manifest itself and I think this is the same, yeah. <clears throat> same case here. Like every the, these three scenarios that Replica mentioned, vision, word of knowledge, and prophecy, they are all ways that mm -hmm. communicate with us, right? But the ones that actually sit down and say, oh, okay, maybe if if first if it's about something that I probably don't, I'm not supposed to know, like just by my natural faculties, I'm not supposed to know about this thing then, but by um, but by um. God's intervention, I get to know them. We can say maybe that's word of knowledge. Or but if it's something about the future, we can say prophecy. If it's about, if it's something that um is not like happening in in my natural space, but then I get to I think I'm experiencing something that is not natural. Maybe you can call that a vision. Yeah. Get so yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Victor. I, I agree with that hundred percent. Um yeah, the Bible, I don't think the scriptures ever really give definitions to those, you know, and those are and those those are in a way, those are like gifts of the spirit. Well, at least word of prophecy and word of knowledge, word of knowledge are gifts of the spirit. So there aren't really definitions. That's why I felt the best way to explain it was using examples just to make it more understandable. So, but I agree with that. Um I see a question from Malaito. Oh, this is a good question. <laughs> What are your thoughts about casting lots just like the apostles did in the book of Acts to choose an additional disciple? Hmm. That's a very good question. Um, I think I remember, I think I remember the story. This was um leading up to the day of Pentecost, if I recall. Um, I mean, I think it might be helpful if we actually pull up that scripture. Um, but I think I know why Elijah is asking that question. That's a very good question. To be honest, I don't I don't really have specific thoughts on it. I feel like that was just the disciples' way of applying wisdom to this decision. You know, because and I know I know that passage in the book of Acts also mentions that there were all other requirements that they were using or considering when they were choosing another apostle. So I think you know what? Let me try and pull that scripture up. But I, I recall this was in the book of Acts. This is probably Acts chapter two. Oh, was it Acts chapter one? I think it was Acts chapter one. Okay, Victoria has okay, Victoria has the passage, but I, I want to read though something else. Okay. So I want to start from, I think it's better we start from verse 15, just for the sake of context. I think it's better we start from verse 15. So it's Acts 1, verse 15. And I and I can just read it because of time. In those days, Peter stood up amongst the believers. Actually, let me read it from the screen. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, 
who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, that's very key, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must be a witness with us of his resurrection. So let me just stop there. So you can already see that there's, there are some key criteria that Peter was saying they were considering. So obviously we can see that they're trying to replace Judas because remember, Judas betrayed Jesus and then what did Jesus do? He committed suicide, he hung himself. And then this was part of fulfilling prophecy from the Old Testament. But then going back, let's go back to verse 22 because what Peter says is very, very important. Beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these, one of these must become a witness of us of his resurrection. So what does this scripture tell, tell us? It tells us that whoever they were going to appoint to a place Judas, he had to have, he had to have this criteria. Number one, he had to have been with the original 12 from the time of John's baptism. So remember when John was baptizing people early in the gospels, when Jesus started his ministry right? Peter was saying that, that, that this disciple that they would choose, he must have been there following them, even though he was not part of the original 12. And then there's a, there's a second more important criteria. He must have been a witness to the resurrection. You know, what does that mean? He must have been one of those that witnessed the resurrection of Christ. So you guys remember that in, in earlier in Acts chapter one, that Luke wrote that Jesus appeared to the women he appeared to the 12 disciples, and then he appeared to 500 at once. Do you, if you guys remember that detail, that's very important. So Peter is saying that whoever we appoint to replace Judas, he must have had two things. Number one, he must have been with us from the time John was baptizing at the start of Christ's ministry, and he must have been a witness to the resurrection. So if the person didn't have any of these two criteria, they couldn't consider him as Judas's replacement. So let's continue. That was, that was very important to highlight that. So, and they proposed two. They proposed two people. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lots fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So you can see why I said we need to read from verse 15 for content's sake. So yes, they casted lots, but they also did other things. Number two, they laid out criterion on what they, like they laid out qualities that they were looking for in the apostle that they were going to appoint to um, replace Judas. And then set, even more importantly, what did they do? They prayed. They prayed. They prayed for God's guidance in making the decision. So, so what I'm basically saying is, um, you know, casting lots is good. You know, casting lots, casting lots was just like, you know, after all they did, the other important thing, it was just a way of making the decision. It was just them applying wisdom. But they also applied wisdom by listing important qualities that the disciple must have. And then 
praying about the decision. And this is very important because this is actually um, this is actually a pattern or an example we should follow when we're making important decisions in our life in general. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I was just going to add something to it. Um, mm -hmm. So just to bring it a bit more close to home. So in the, we're in a situation that um, me and my family, we're looking for a new church, right? Right. And um, so we we're, we're, we're sort of choosing between a few churches. So let's mm -hmm. imagine if we apply the same sort of principle, um, we have a criteria, Bible-centered, charismatic, yeah, spirit, exactly. all these things, and we, and we go through that. And let's say there the remains like two or three. So are we saying that we can then, after we've prayed, cast a lot to just choose whichever one whichever one i just throw something on a, a dice on the floor whichever one that it goes to we're gonna go with it would you say that's something that we could do as christians uh i mean i i, I get where you're coming from that's actually hmm, i've actually never thought of that before casting lots to choose a church so i mean i think if what i would probably do if i was in your situation you know, like, so listing, listing the qualities that you want in a church, that's very important. So you've taken the first, the right first step, obviously bring up a decision. I would personally then go and visit each of the churches that we're considering. That's what I would do, right? So maybe one Sunday, you can, you have the first church on your list that you're considering, you can go to one of the services on one Sunday, then the next Sunday, you now go to the next church and then when you've now gone through, like you've kind of seen all the churches, you've seen how they do their service, you'll probably be better placed to make a decision on which church to choose. So rather than casting lots, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't cast lots for this particular decision, but that's just me. Um, sorry, I want to ask a question. So the casting lots here in Acts 1, this that the apostles did, is it? like the use of Umimathurim that they use in the Old Testament, that, that the priests use in the Old Testament, or they kind of like took a vote in some way, like which was... Those are two separate situations. So the Umimathurim, that's a bit different. I'm not sure if the disciples did that. Um, but I would yeah, just say I, think, that I don't think those are the same. I don't, I don't think yeah, those are quite the same. The idea of just randomly um you know casting a lot to um to make a decision yeah i think the casting so i'm thinking of another occurrence in the bible when i think of casting lots i'm thinking of what the soldiers did with jesus's cloth after they crucified him do you guys remember that part of yeah. the story yeah when when they yeah. crucified jesus and they were like you know they'll cast lots for his cloth and and that actually was a fulfillment of scripture from the old testament which is very interesting so that's what i think they meant by casting lots I mean, so, I, don't, I, don't I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's wrong. As like, I, I don't think it's wrong. Just like we but... like mentioned earlier, like they already they highlighted the policies they wanted in the circles and they prayed. So I think they believe that mm -hmm. after they prayed, the Holy Spirit should be able to guide them as to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that option, I, I, they just wanted to pick. Yeah, yeah. So I mean. And, 
I'll just, sorry, I was just gonna I was just gonna say because just to echo what you said earlier, just in terms of peace. So a level of peace that you get from I guess in mm-hmm. this example that I liked on the speaking about if you were to visit this church and then you just feel a sense of yeah, this is my home. So that again could be that level of discernment there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um and so I, what I want to highlight is that from all the examples and even Alito's um example, which is a good example, we're seeing a pattern. We're seeing a pattern of first, you drop, you kind of like make a list of qualities that you're looking for, whether it's choosing a church or whatever, and then you go into prayer. So you notice that there's a combination of both. There's yes. a combination of there's a combination of using the wisdom that God has given us, because God has mm-hmm. given us wisdom, being able to make decisions, just using wisdom, using intelligence, and then going into prayer, trusting God to lead us to make the right choice based on the wisdom we did yeah. prior. So I, I think those are the two things really that we should take away from that. So. Yeah. Yeah, that was really good. Um, I was just going to add one more final thought, and that's um, uh, that's something that I have been sort of taught over the years I've become aware mm-hmm. about the book of Acts that as Christians, we should be quite careful about getting doctrine from the book of Acts because um, it's 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 mm-hmm. a historical account of the early church. So, you know, they were learning, they were it was early days and, you know, we should be quite careful about taking practical things that we should use for doctrine from the book of Acts. So that's something else that, that helps me when I read that. Yeah, I mean, Acts... So Acts was similar to the Gospels. I think that's that's actually a pretty decent point. Acts Acts is similar to the Gospel in that it was just a um, it was a historical account of how the church started and how the church grew, right? So there, it was just basically documenting specific events within the history of the early church amongst the first Christians. So I mean, I mean, there's there is some doctrine that you could take away because I know Acts talks about how. The apostle, the church followed the doctrine of the apostles. I think Acts two mentions that. So, but I mean, I don't think Acts has much doctrine in it anyway, just simply because of the nature of the book. So, but yeah, I think treasure. You could just you could just take all kinds of things from there and just start making people die after they didn't give enough offering or <laughs> all sorts of stuff because uh, there was a lot of growth going place uh, taking place in that in that time in that period um, from the early church so that's why i just thought to, so it's, it's really helped me in terms of um, navigating the, the scriptures and just being careful about taking um you know things to apply from the book of acts i be being careful there's some good stuff there but it's just being careful about just um you know applying directly everything you see in the book of Acts and saying that's what we should do as Christians. Yeah, I, I, I definitely get what you're saying, Elijah. Um, I know we, well, technically we have one minute left, but Treasure has typed something in the chat. So Treasure, do you want to kind of talk about this? Because I, I think so I get where you're remember, coming from, but yeah, just so for clarification, I, do you want to explain? I remember... There's this scripture in Proverbs that talks about the die being casted, but basically the outcome is of the Lord, more or less. Like the Lord is mm-hmm. the one that basically decides the outcome of die, whatever die has been casted. Um, basically doing away with um coincidences or something being happening, like happening by chance or something. I also remember that you know it tended to happen a lot within the Jewish 
or some some like within the Jewish culture from time to time. Um, mm. You also see it in the book of Jonah, right? When they were to decide who they were going to throw overboard, right? They basically kind of like casted lots and then the person with the shortest stick in Jonah. And we knew that it was God that directly, more or less, like, coordinated it in such a way that Jonah definitely drew the shortest and he was thrown overboard. Um, and so my my thinking, I, I don't know how accurate this might be. It's something that I would have to study more closely. Is at that particular point in time when this was happening, um, it hadn't re- actually been recorded in Acts that the Spirit of God had actually come upon them. So I believe they did um, mm. to the best of their abilities what they could do humanly possible, which was so for this person to be an apostle with us, there has to be some criteria. And so they pick, came up with the, oh, he must have been with Jesus and things like that. <clears throat> and at the end of the day, they also prayed about it. And I'm piggybacking from that scripture of when Solomon says the die is cast, but basically like whatever the outcome is of the Lord. And I'm piggybacking from that. And I'm thinking, what if that was like, the thinking at that particular point in time that mm. whatever the outcome will be, it's God's, you know, God's outcome because they've prayed, they've done what they could do in their point of selection. They have prayed about it and they were believing that the Lord will sovereignly appoint whoever he's going to appoint through the casting of the die. I right. don't think that, and the reason I'm even saying this is, I don't think it now happens after they get the spirit. If if you, I can't clear, I can't remember any particular point in time when, you know, the spirit had come upon them, and there was a point in time again where they had to cast lots or cast a die or something. Because at that particular point in time, it seems like they were being spirit was already there, so. guided, and they were being led. I, I get what you're example. saying. That kind of makes they sense. They needed to pick up yeah. some. Um, they were praying, and God says, "Separate to me, Paul and and Barnabas." Barnabas. And everything, and then we clearly see like more of, you know, God's or the Spirit's intervention in things like that. So I'm just thinking, like, could that actually be the reason why they actually did cast lots? Honestly, that's a very solid point. And you know what's interesting? I think, I mean, I don't, I don't want to talk about it, but like, I mean, our time is up, and I don't want to start going to another tangent, but. That's a very solid point you raise because I feel like even in the Old Testament, and you know, obviously the Old Testament, this is pre-salvation, so this pre the Holy Spirit, you know, um, the way the Holy Spirit works now. But God would always use human, not I don't want to say human intervention, but I feel like God always had a way of using human capacity. You know, so at least we'll be able to make certain decisions, you know, because obviously as human beings, we're limited without God, we're, we're actually worse than limited, can't do anything at all without the intervention and, you know, the grace and mercy of God. But I, I totally get what you're leading. Um, I, I get what you're saying. Um, yeah, I think, I think you might have a point, actually, because I can't think of, you know, casting lots ever occurring again post-Pentecost. That's a very good point. Victoria, you have your hand up. Yeah, I wanted to say that what Treasure said is, is actually a very, like everyone said, like actually a very good point. 
And it also boils down to what Olaifton mentioned that um the book of Acts is it's not like advisable to just pick cherry pick doctrine from the book of Acts because we saw how that the apostles were actually growing in knowledge, right? So this mm-hmm. happened before this happened before the Holy Spirit came and we, we can see that after the Holy Spirit, after they received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came on them at Pentecost. There was no need to cast lot again, like um how they received instruction or how they received guidance from through the Holy Spirit was different. It was more straightforward than yeah, yeah than casting lots and you know going through all those stuff. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think I think um just to round off on because I know over time, just to round off, I think we can agree that casting lots was just their way of at least, at least until before the Holy Spirit came, was just their way of you know, at least still relying on God to make certain decisions. Because Treasure Treasure made a good point with the story of Jonah. The fact that they casted lots, but it's still, the lot still pointed out that it is Jonah, you know, that is the cause of all this. Is that's that's a, that's like an example of God's own in like his own intervention into the matter, into human affairs, if that makes sense. So yeah, that. I would, I would agree with that statement. Hey there. So we've come to the end of this teaching session and we hope it was for you a teaching and an enlightening moment. We have so many other topics on our podcast that range from spiritual gifts to charisma to interpreting the Bible world and so many others. If you'd like to listen to any one of them, just look through our podcast catalog and find the topic that you'd love to learn. If you'd like to join us Sunday live on MixLR or on Zoom, all you need to do is go to our website, which is bit.ly forward slash bmglive4. That's the number four. Or you can look in the description and you'll find the link to the website there. We hope you have a blessed week and continue to grow and progress with joy in your faith.